Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guest today is John McAllister, businessman, think tank director, and elected official, currently the Nebraska State Senator for District 20 in Omaha. Our conversation is being recorded today by Zoom. John McAllister grew up in Omaha and graduated from the University of Nebraska in Lincoln with a degree in business administration. He then embarked on a 35-year career with McAllister & Co., a three-generation family business that manufactured lubricants for large commercial, industrial, and private label customers in 14 Midwestern states. From 1979 to 2008, McAllister served as a publicly elected member of the Metropolitan Utilities District Board of Directors, which provides natural gas and water to the Omaha area. In early 2009, McAllister was named Executive Director of the Platt Institute for Economic Research, a nonprofit free market think tank. In 2014, Senator McAllister was elected to the Nebraska Legislature. He is currently a member of the Legislature's Executive Board, the Revenue Committee, and the Government, Military, and Veteran Affairs Committee. He is also the Vice Chair of the Planning Committee. During his tenure in the legislature, McCollister has promoted criminal justice reform, accessibility of public benefits, climate change, and renewable energy legislation. Senator McCollister, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Stuart. It's good to be with you. Clearly, this is a long and multifaceted and expansive career uh, in many Mm -hmm. public and private ways. And so I wanted to start at the beginning uh, and ask you, I think you were born in Moline, Illinois, even even though you grew up in Omaha. So tell us a little bit more about your childhood. Well, it's rather unremarkable, I think. Uh, Played a little league uh, baseball, did all the things that uh, kids do. I grew up in Dundee and uh, went to Dundee school with Bob Freeman and and a lot of uh, distinguished alumni. Then on to Lewis and Clark for two years. Uh, then moved to Westside and went to Westside High School. Uh, went out for football and learned how to dislocate my shoulder, uh, which uh, I discovered isn't that much fun. Then went on to college at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln and earned a, a degree in business. So rather unremarkable, I think. I uh, wasn't distinguished as a scholar either in high school or college, uh, but uh, you know, I at least uh, graduated. You know, my mom had to uh, pay all my parking fees uh, before I graduated because uh, I guess I left a a sizable bill. She paid my parking fees and I did graduate. That suggests at least a certain um, mischievous devil may care attitude somewhere in there. Uh, Perhaps so. And maybe as we continue, we'll, we'll see traits of that continuing. I'm reluctant to let you go with the expression unremarkable. And because there must have been some experiences or family context that perhaps helped shape the man that you have clearly become over the years. Um, not least, for example, perhaps being the, the, the son of a former Republican congressman. So I'm, I'm wondering, as you look back on your formative years, what were some of those 
I don't know, experiences well, <clears throat> that influenced you? Well, I took a semester off of college to help my dad get elected to the House uh, in 70, 1970. Um, and I went through towns and I would put up posters and put out campaign signs and did all of that kind of thing. So I have had a great deal of experience in politics. I suppose there's been a McAllister on the ballot maybe a third of the time over the last 50 or 60 years. Uh, my brother ran for mayor and was a two-term county commissioner. And of course, I was on the MUD board for five terms. And so, yeah. And then my dad was a, a congressman for three terms. But before that, he was a county commissioner for two terms. So, you know, the family does have a, a pretty wide background in politics. So I suppose that is a factor that uh, we should we should mention. What was it that motivated your father to be involved in public service? He was appointed to the county board. Uh, one of the county commissioners died. Uh, so he, uh, he was appointed to do that. He was involved with Republican politics when Republican politics were much different than they are now. Uh, of course, that was the Republican Party of Eisenhower, Nixon, and a few other folks that uh, would be called rhinos now. Uh, but uh, he was involved in politics and enjoyed it. And apparently it uh, extended to uh, both my brother and I. Is it just you in the family and your brother, or do you have other siblings? Uh, two brothers. Steve is in Omaha, and brother Bruce is in Sioux Falls. And uh, all three of us were involved with uh, the uh, lubricant company, um, which we sold in 2006. So that clearly is another part of your, your life story that I think is likely to have really shaped uh, much of your life and, and who you are and how you see the world. And I'm wondering, what was that business? And what did you learn about the world from being a business owner? Well, it's interesting, actually, Stuart. Uh, I graduated in 71. And with my dad's election to the Congress, he was no longer associated with the company. So it was my brother, Steve, and I uh, that ran the company. And that was during uh, the petroleum shortage in the early 70s. We managed that very well. Uh, and until about early, early 80s, the company did, did very well. But my dad lost the election for the Senate uh, in 76. Uh, so uh, that, that, that changed the, the uh, situation for us a great deal. Uh, he came back oh, about five years later, around 1981, something like that. He uh, worked for Firestone for three or four years. Now, he had, was on tap to be appointed a small business administrator, but he chose not to do that and chose to instead to come back. But then hit the farm crisis of the early 80s, 15% interest rates, and the company, uh, we almost bought the farm, so, as they say, in that early 80s. But we persevered, came through it, and uh, started buying companies and prospered until 2006. Uh, when we sold the company to a large farm co-op. But, you know, the original sales of the company were about a million dollars. And when we sold it, we were right at about 20 million uh, with 75 uh, employees. And uh, so we were a, a big, small company. What do you take away from that experience over the years? 
what life lessons or business lessons or political lessons do you take away from those experiences? Well, perseverance is, is the message that you, you come away with, particularly when the company was struggling. A lot of sleepless nights. And uh, from what I understand, it builds character, but uh, it, it, was, it was hard work. And uh, I was uh, we're lucky to get through it. A lot of people didn't. Uh, so we're lucky we, we came through and, and finally made a success of it uh, and bought some fairly good-sized companies. So uh, you know, from that standpoint, I'm proud of what we were able to do and what we were able to get through with the farm depression. I know that you have an active involvement in Countryside Community Church, which is a Christian-based faith, and it's located on the Tri-Faith Campus. So it's a campus that shares uh, a church, a mosque, and a synagogue. And I'm wondering not only how your faith perhaps influences your view on the world, but what lessons or importance you draw from the fact that you're part of this Tri-Faith endeavor. Well, it certainly wasn't my idea. Uh, it was the idea of our pastor, Eric Illness, to uh, join the Tri-Faith Initiative. But the congregation voted to, uh, to move our church to the Tri-Faith Campus. I wasn't particularly in favor of that since I was the building chair in 2000 when we uh, extensively remodeled the church. Uh, I thought we could participate with Tri-Faith but not actually be there. But the congregation moved uh, voted to move. So I'm happy and I embrace the concept uh, more now than ever. Um, we often mix uh, our congregations with uh, two other other groups. And I have to say, it is so enriching. You know, the, the Muslims that we, we know, beautiful people. Uh, same thing with the, the Jewish congregants of, uh, uh, of, that, of that temple. So uh, we've had a great time associating with that. My wife is far more involved than, than I have been, uh, but uh, it, it's enriched our, our lives greatly. And I'm, uh, I'm glad we make, made the, the move. So I guess I'm in some ways building up to talk about your current public service. No doubt we will be calling on many of these experiences through your life that maybe shape your current service uh, and experiences today. You talk about Republican values in, in political terms, but I don't know that there's a playbook or a uniform set of documents that tell you what Republican values are. 
I wonder if you wouldn't mind just telling me when you talk about Republican values, what do they mean to you? Well, actually, I have a website called Republican Redefined, and it talks about what I think Republicans should stand for. And we've talked about Eisenhower and Nixon. And Nixon, I think we need to recall, started the EPA and the Energy Department. So clean water, clean air. I'll never forget driving through Chicago with my brother, Steve. And in the middle of the day, it was like nighttime because the smog was so bad. And of course, at that same time, rivers would start, would catch fire. So, you know, the Clean Air and Clean Water Act that occurred under the Nixon administration are good examples of, of taking care of the environment. Of course, we've, we've come a great deal further lately, uh, but you know, some of that legislation, some of the legislation regarding labor unions, uh, you know, Republicans lately have been fairly antagonistic toward the labor movement, and that's unfortunate. Uh, you know, back at our company, uh, we were represented by the Teamsters. And uh, we never had a strike, but we found that the advantages of having a labor union were fairly extensive. You know, the employees, by virtue of a labor union, had had a guide to to, uh, how the company should be treated, and it went very well. When we had a good steward, good union steward, things went amazingly well. Uh, When we had a steward that wasn't so good, things didn't go so well. So... The labor union is another issue I think Republicans have gone away from lately. Uh, rule of law in the op-ed that I just wrote in the Sunday paper, uh, 173 uh, Congress people voted against the peaceful transition of power in our country. You know, I think the Republicans have, have really lost its mooring, and I'm going to continue to speak about that. So I, I think the Republicans have lost their way. And uh, I'm going to continue to, to say that uh, in a variety of sources. You're probably aware of my social media activity. It's uh, my, my voice, but uh, my son Dan's uh, rocket fuel. And um, so uh, he's done a good job, and I've enjoyed working with my son on, on that uh, part of my social media life. This current ecosystem this discussion about what the Republican Party is, what it stands for. You endorsed uh, or a part of something called Stand Up Republic, uh, which is a movement calling for a, a new party if the Republican Party doesn't break from Trump or Trumpism. And Stand Up Republic issued an open letter titled A Call for American Renewal in which it says that Republicans must either reimagine a party dedicated to our founding ideals or else hasten the creation of such an alternative. I've heard the expression, you know, that you didn't leave the Republican Party, the Republican Party's left you. I'm just curious where you see your place in a party that doesn't seem to have a place for you. Well, I'm always asked, why don't you just leave? I'm not sure any political party... uh, holds my attraction right now. The Democrats have their issues as well. Uh, I suppose probably the best place for me is as an independent, but you know, I will lose my platform if I, if I were to change my party registration now. You know, I was out yesterday going door to door and it's so interesting to, to learn what people think 
about the political parties. You know, you, you'll meet a, peop- a group of people on the far left, and the far right. But I'll tell you, Stuart, most of the people are in that middle band. And uh, so the, the parties really don't count for much for most, to, to most people that you, you come in contact with. You know, they, they would prefer a moderate to somebody in the far left or far right. And I, I hope I exemplify that position. want to talk about getting stuff done and compromise as part of just the art of politics and also the art of governing. But maybe, maybe I'll just talk a little bit perhaps about the, the bad news and the dark side before we maybe emerge out into, in, into that sort of positive action. As a human, I think many of us are concerned, and I think you are especially concerned, possibly for your own safety, with extreme rhetoric and the use of language whether it's from Washington, within Washington, even down to our local school boards, where the degree of uh, vitriol is really quite unseemly and unheard of. And I just wonder if you have similar anxieties about the tone of our public discourse, and if indeed you have actually any uh, anxiety about your own personal safety. Well, good question. And, you know, the uh the big discussion about uh, school boards now and some of the threats that are being made against those school board members uh, is reminiscent of what it was in 2015 uh, when we had the death penalty debate in the legislature. I got about 1,500 emails on either side of the question, and I did get some death threats. And we simply turned those over to the state patrol and they investigated him. And I'll tell you what, they did a good job of, of stopping that. Uh, when some people were approaching the line, I said, hey, cut this out or I'm going to turn you over to the state patrol. And that seemed to stop things pretty well. But you're exactly right. Some of the discourse, the toxic discourse occurring right now in politics is something new. And I think it's emanating from some of the right wing stations, particularly Fox. You know, I think they're fermenting some of that rhetoric that is so, so unfortunate. No, I've seen it. And I still get some, you know, emails that are uh, lambasting me for this or that. But uh, the death penalty uh, debate was, was uh, the, the wildest. And it had people with strong opinions on both sides. Now, am I, uh, do I fear for my personal safety? Nah. You know, I'm 74. Had a great life, great family. Uh, they want to take me out. Go ahead. 
I've had my money's worth. So, but no, I, I don't think my colleagues or I really fear for our personal safety. In Nebraska, it's a little tamer, I think, than perhaps other areas of the country. Well, there are those somewhat, to me, as someone who grew up in a country where seeing a gun in public was never something one encountered. You know, here it's it's a totally lawful constitutional activity. And I, I totally understand the constitutionality of that. But nonetheless, just given my context, it, it feels a bit startling to see images uh, such as at the, I think it was the Wisconsin State House of last year with um, citizens standing in the public galleries with long weapons and, and this sort of thing. It's an expression of a right, but it made me feel intimidated just looking at the images. You know, two years ago, we had a bill in the legislature before the Judiciary Committee, uh, which brought out all of the folks, the gun owners, and they brought their, their AR-15s, uh, pistols and everything else into the legislative chamber. And they had that right. You're aware we don't even have uh, metal detectors going into the uh, the state house, Capitol building. And and so here they were in a legislative hearing with uh, an AR-15 testifying in front of the Judiciary Committee. So I know exactly what you're talking about. It was interesting to talk to the state patrol about that. And they they weren't unduly concerned. I tell you what, they had 10 officers there. If anybody would have tried anything, I'm, I'm sure they, they would have dealt with it effectively. Uh, so, yeah, I've had a couple of gun legislation bills, but they sure don't go anywhere. Did you or any of your colleagues express just a hint, you know, a little twinge of anxiety? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I felt the presence of the state patrol to be uh, helpful in that respect. But some of my colleagues were still concerned about it and still are concerned about it. So I, um, I know that, that that is an issue, particularly for some of my uh, colleagues. The last public statement you've made that I'll mention sort of in, in this category before we think about some of the work you've been doing across the aisle and uh, for your constituents in the state broadly. You mentioned uh, sort of a media public discourse fermenting rhetoric that wasn't positive, and you've called out these entities and, and even your own party for enabling a white supremacy. And I just wonder if you've had any uh, hesitation looking back on that or any blowback. It's really quite interesting. Uh, after that August 4th, 19, uh, uh, 2019 uh, tweet that we put out, I suppose I got another thousand emails. Uh, about two thirds of it uh, was was very positive, mostly from Republicans throughout the country and the world, uh, congratulating me on on taking that position. And until that time, there wasn't a single Republican denouncing Donald Trump and some of his racist uh, comments. It's all related to uh, uh, Charlottesville and uh, that incident where we had the uh, Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and all that and those riots. And of course, I'm hearkened by the fact just lately, uh, they were found to be liable for, for, for that riot that they caused. So initially, the Republican Party, I think you probably read it as well, told me to leave the party and they would bring me an application to my house. Uh, I didn't take the bait. And really, every time I've mentioned the Republican Party since, they have left me alone. 
for fear that they're going to get blowback only from from the the people that uh, respond to my social media tweets and and Facebook postings because uh, they really get nailed when uh, they do uh, attempt to uh, take me on. So I've, I've been given a, a pass. I don't know why that is. Uh, if I ever run for election again, I'm sure they'll they'll take it out on me. <laughs> We're touching now, I think, on um, matters of principle. We're also touching upon being responsive to constituents, but also being responsive for constituents, as well as the art of compromise. I want to highlight a quotation that you have on some of your campaign coffee cups. And it's a quote from Edmund Burke, and it says, your representative owes you not his industry only, but his judgment. And he betrays instead of serving you if he sacrifices it to your opinion. So I, I think that really speaks to this tricky balance between um, being above and outside the constituents you serve or being led by popular opinion. So you're elected to use your smart judgment, always minded that you're serving, not telling. I'm wondering how you go about finding that balance between using your judgment, but also being responsive to your constituents' needs and demands. The best example of that, Stuart, is a con- that conundrum that, that a politician has is, is the death penalty debate that we had in the legislature. I went to the legislature without strong feelings about the death penalty, but the legislative process does a great job of exploring uh, all the facets of a particular bill. And that was uh, Ernie Chambers' bill. And he was an eloquent spokesman for repealing the death penalty, amazingly so. But the Judiciary Committee did did an outstanding job of fleshing out all the relevant details about the death penalty, whether uh, it does uh, cause people to think twice about uh, doing an act of violence. And I came to the conclusion after great debate on the floor that repealing the death penalty was the best way to go. But you have to remember that my constituents did not have the advantage uh, of that debate and all the things I learned about that or all the emails that I uh, got. So I was able to glean through all of that. So, you know, I had that advantage and my constituents did not have that advantage. So, you know, with that in mind, I voted my conscience. Uh, I, as I mentioned earlier, I had about 1,500 emails on 
both sides of the question. Um, and so uh, how, how is a politician to, to uh, make a judgment on the best way to go based on what constituents want when, they, when the, the number for and against are about the same? So you just have to use your judgment because I think that's ultimately uh, the best way to go. I also want to talk about compromise as well. And you authored a piece with Senator Adam Moorfeld, and you spoke about the importance of a nonpartisan unicameral in enabling elected officials to work together. And in that piece, you observed common sense decision making is in short supply in so many other parts of our country. And again, I'm wondering how you approach not only balancing your judgment with demands of constituents, but how you uh, work across the aisle. They say perfect is the enemy of good. So 50% of something is better than 100% of nothing. That was a Reagan quote. In politics and particularly in legislation, you have to be moderate. You have to compromise with your colleagues. I, I think I have done that a lot. Uh, the last couple of years, we've had some big tax bills uh, that involved a lot of a lot of compromise, and uh, we have some good people in the legislature that that are able to affect compromise. Mark Colderman, uh, Steve Lathrop, are a couple of the outstanding people that that uh, uh, give us compromise. Uh, if you take the party label or the party line, uh, and strictly adhere to that, you're never going to get anywhere. And I think Nebraska, with its uh, uh, nonpartisan one-house legislature, does an amazing job of, of uh, coming to compromise on important bills. And I, I think that if you review, at least uh, during my seven sessions in the legislature, uh, that, that often happens. Uh, it's become more partisan uh, over the last four or five years. Uh, but uh, we still are able to come to a compromise and, and get bills through the legislative process. So let's talk about some of the bills that you have led, that they've been a passion of yours, but obviously as part of the process, you've had to persuade and enlist the support of many of your colleagues behind them. So what have been some of your legislative priorities and successes and, and maybe even some of your, you know, to your chagrin, some of your failures? Well, uh, my, my first big bill uh, was LB824, uh, Renewable Energy Bill. And what that did was level the playing field between renewable energy and conventionally uh, coal-fired uh, plants. Uh, and since that time, Nebraska has uh, put in $3 billion worth of, of uh, renewable energy facilities, namely uh, wind, wind towers, wind turbines, and solar farms. So that is a cash crop. And of course, farmers uh, get a benefit from that with landowner payments and counties are able to help reduce property taxes with that bill. So that was a good one. And uh, I couldn't have done it without the help of OPPD. They realized uh, what a good thing renewable energy is. And I think we've all seen the, the, the benefits of that. Uh, energy prices, at least in Nebraska, have stayed fairly constant. It's just this year, I think, is the first year in three that uh, electricity prices are going to go up, primarily because of renewable energy. Other bills, uh, you know, we talked about in the past, uh, SNAP, food stamps. And it took me six years to get that bill out, um, LB-108. 
and that was passed just in the last session. And I really had to fight through that one. Uh, it was vetoed by the governor, uh, and we had to find 30 votes, including a good number of Republicans, to take care of that veto and override the veto. But that was a good one. Uh, also did a tax bill, the remote sales tax bill. That's probably added, I don't know, uh, 30 to $50 million to uh, Nebraska's uh, tax base. When you order something online with the passage of my bill, you have to pay sales tax on it, just like if you were to buy it from a store. So that was a good one as well. Some of my other bills, the Veterans Court has been wildly successful. You know, criminal justice reform has been one of my big topics as well, making it possible for those people, they're incarcerated to make phone calls to their loved ones at a reasonable cost. Before that time, the prisons would charge a surcharge, a big surcharge, uh, and they'd simply put it in the, in the jail budget for God knows what. So, no, I've, I've had some good successes and I'm, I'm proud of what I've been able to do in my seven years. some great wins there that benefit Nebraska and Nebraskans. But what about some of those that, for the time being at least, have um, have gotten away? The climate change bill is probably what you're speaking of. Uh, and given the, the current folks on the, the Natural Resource Committee, those bills just don't get out of committee. Just don't make it. And that's unfortunate. And so it really comes down to... Uh, asking people to elect the senators that uh, recognize that climate change is real and uh, we need to deal with it. Uh, Nebraska, with just 2 million in population, hasn't been nearly successful, as successful as some of the states on the east and west coasts. But, you know, we need to deal with it. The flood that we had just a couple of years ago is, is a darn good reason for us to recognize that climate change is real and that we have to deal with it as well. Uh, but, you know, I see that happening, particularly around the country. I think uh, the, the movement toward uh, electric cars, I think is, is gonna make a great deal of difference. And I think the public utilities in Nebraska, OPPD, NPPD, you know, they've established uh, 2050 as a carbon neutral uh, time uh, to a, which, which probably means uh, 
taking down those, those big coal-fired plants that they have. I think we're, we're making a dent, but uh, we certainly haven't done a great job in the legislature itself. There's an old axiom about power corrupting. How do you keep yourself grounded and not corrupted? Hmm. Well, I think the legislators, the state senators do a good job because of the responsibility is pretty well dissipated through all 49 senators. In effect, we are independent contractors. And certainly some senators have more sway than others, uh, but I don't think it rises to a level. You just say, you know, it corrupts. Uh, you know, perhaps the administrative branch in our government has, has more to uh, corruption in, in a way because the governor in almost any state has so much authority. And, uh, but the legislative branch itself certainly does not. We talked a little bit earlier about using your judgment in that sort of Burkean sense, but you also need to have your finger on the pulse of what your constituents' needs and desires are. And at the same time, be sure that you have enough information about you know, what's changing, what's possible, so that you're best able to represent them. So I'm wondering how you go about staying in touch with your constituents, how you are visible to them as well. Well, that's easy. Uh, if you want to get elected in Nebraska uh, State Senate, you go door to door. Uh, when I ran for the Senate in 2014, I knocked on 11,000 doors, 11,000 doors. That's a lot of doors. You know, I was uh, peed on, fell through a porch, bitten by a dog, chased by turkeys. If you want to stay in touch, you go door to door. Matter of fact, I did some door-to-door -door yesterday. I'm not up for election, but just to see what people are thinking. And that is really the best way to do that. You know, but you also, the juxtaposition is uh, you need to read a lot. Uh, not just the New York Times, not just the World Herald, not just the Wall Street Journal, but some of the other media sources that you have. The Atlantic is, is a great source of information. So read widely. Uh, you know, do the do the door to door thing. Maybe a few town halls. Take phone calls. Take emails. I read all my own emails, so I think by doing some of that, you get you keep track of what's going on in the community and also what's going on uh, nationally. Have you learned anything recently that perhaps has um, I don't know, just something new or surprising? I suppose I did right at seventy five eighty. Uh, houses yesterday, I heard one person mention C, critical race theory, only one. One person men mentioned taxes. Another person mentioned uh, high gas prices. But for the most part, uh, you know, people are, are satisfied. Um, they'll mention some of those obvious things that, that uh, we all know about. You know, it's interesting, Stuart, when I first came to the legislature uh, from the Platt Institute, that was an interesting juxtaposition because here I, when I first got elected in 14, I talked about Nebraska's high taxes. Um, you know, we're seventh, eighth or ninth in terms of property taxes in the middle of the road for sales tax uh, and the income tax. We're kind of middle of the road. And so I talked a lot about that. But when I got to the legislature that next year, it, it was a little different. And some of the things I started focusing on weren't related to taxes. Although I should say, I always 
uh, supported the governor's spending requests, uh, and I supported in the last two or three years some of the uh, the property tax reductions that we've put into effect. So uh, I haven't completely forgotten about the, some of the tax issues, but some of the SNAP issues, uh, renewable energy, criminal justice reform, uh, they've They've held a lot more interest to me uh, lately than I than I had in really makes me curious about how you feel as you look back, how you have changed as a person as a result of the many iterations and facets of who John McCollister is. Well, I, I contend I haven't changed that much. Even my work at Platt was pretty balanced. We did foster care. We talked about Metro Transit, but we did some issues that I didn't know much about, charter schools, vouchers, and things like that. But, you know, since I went to the legislature, I recognize how important public schools are. And so I've, I've been a full-throated support of public schools and have not in any way supported charters or vouchers. Uh, that, that's probably the greatest departure uh, from my Platt days, I, I would say. Uh, but, um, you know, I don't think I've changed that much, but I'm sure other folks will, will claim otherwise. <laughs> You've had an elected office in various ways, shape, or form for years. I'm curious about what have been the joys of that, but also the frustrations in your time uh, as a public servant. Some of the inane comments that occur on the legislative floor, I mean, sometimes are just beyond belief. Unsupported comments, total erroneous facts, things like that. But what I have really enjoyed is, is, is working the legislative process. And it's, it is so good in Nebraska. No caucus system. You know, everybody's an independent contractor. Uh, so, you know, bills have a good chance. Every bill, in fact, gets a hearing in the Nebraska legislature. And that is unusual. In most states, you'll, you'll have a party chairman or, or caucus leader uh, decide what bills come to the floor. Uh, and that's not the case in Nebraska. So the legislative process really does work. And I've enjoyed participating in that. Not only that, I've made some of the best friends of my entire life uh, in that legislature. And I'm going to be sorry to go uh, for that reason, although our friendships will endure, I think, uh, forever. Uh, so 
you know, I, I'm going to miss that uh, when I leave it in, uh, in the end of 22. What is going to be your big push? Succeed or not, but what is going to be your big final effort as a public servant for 2022? I'm working on a set-aside bill. Um, and what that will do is enable somebody that's been incarcerated for a you know, low-level felony uh, or a misdemeanor can go to the judge who sentenced that person and they can hide uh, that person's record uh, for employment purposes only. Now, that record can't be expunged. Only by the pardon board can do that. But law enforcement agencies, the prosecutors, you know, they can continue to, to see that record. But if a person goes, applies for a job, they can say, I have no felonies. And, and so that set-aside bill I've been working on for a couple of years, and I really need to get that through this year, this next year. You mentioned earlier when campaigning uh, that you were attacked by turkeys. But I want to know, did they donate or vote for you? <laughs> Are you saying that uh, those turkeys somehow or another got a ballot and turned it into the Douglas County uh, election commissioner? No, I'm not going down that road, Stuart. Uh, I think Douglas County election commissioner does a great job. There's no, uh, no votes, no fraudulent votes in Douglas County by individuals, turkeys, or any other uh, animal of any kind. <laughs> My guest today has been John McAllister, longtime businessman, think tank director, and elected official, currently the Nebraska State Senator for District 20 in Omaha. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Really appreciate it. I've enjoyed it. Take care, Stuart. That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at Lives Radio Show. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives Radio Show and Podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, and more. Thank you.